You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. There's not like the one demand and then institutions of power can meet this demand and fix things. And now we live in this new beautiful society. No. So in that sense, not a demand. We're not looking for a politician to change things or fix things. But that doesn't mean literally that there weren't groups who were working around eviction saying, don't evict you know, these homes in this neighborhood to whatever landlord, or we want to cancel student debt. We have millions of wants and desires, and some of them meant we had to engage with different institutions of power. But as a general political perspective and what we were doing, our gaze was at each other. That's that whole idea of being horizontal, is that we were creating relationships with one another, and that's where change comes from. The way people talk about Occupy Wall Street now, some people, is to be dismissive, I think. And we weren't serious because we didn't have a strategy. And that strategy was we weren't looking for institutions of power to solve things for us or to fix things, that we weren't strategic. And we were really strategic in changing relationships in what we wanted to do. So it depends on kind of where you're coming from or what your perspective is around change. If you're looking at what was the demand, what was the structure, you would say Occupy Wall Street died. But if you're looking at relationships and forms of organizing, then you would see it in Occupy Sandy and all of these other forms of organizing. And it's something that is pretty consistent around the world where there were similar kinds of movements. People said to the you know, movements in Spain that they were over. And what the people in Spain would say is, well, we might not be occupying the plaza, but the DNA of the movement continues. We have an excellent episode today about the legacy of Occupy Wall Street with our guests Marina Citrin and Vanessa Zettler, two contributors to the recent collection Pandemic Solidarity, Mutual Aid During the COVID-19 Crisis, which is published by Pluto Press. But before getting to the episode, we have an exciting announcement to share with our listeners. The record label In The Red Records, which is an independent rock and roll music label based in Los Angeles and features a number of amazing artists, has given Laborwave Radio permission to use music from their label on the show. So you're going to be hearing music from In The Red on Laborwave moving forward. And that includes artists like Ty Siegel, The Spitz, Vivian Girls, Ty Vec, King Con and Barbecue Show, and of course, the OCs, who you have already heard on Labor Wave, thanks to John Dwyer, frontman for the group, providing us permission to play the OCs and his other side project, Damage Bug. So we're really appreciative, and utmost gratitude goes to In The Red Records for allowing us to play their music on the show. Our listeners, I believe, are going to really enjoy learning about the artists that they have and hearing some rad tunes coming from them. Labor Wave Radio is a fully independent podcast sustained by listeners like you through our Patreon. You can help support Labor Wave by becoming a patron of the show, joining as either a rank and filer, a committee member, or a strike captain. Each of those tiers gives you access to our Labor Wave Discord and also comes with some goodies that we give out frequently, including stickers, illustrated zines, and our really awesome original custom-made t-shirts. So please support LaborWave. You can also do that by following and liking our show on our various social media and audio platforms such as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have a number of really exciting upcoming episodes, which includes a tribute to the life and ideas of the late David Graeber, an interview with the Angry Workers about their latest book, Class Power on Zero Hour, published by PM Press. We also have a final episode on our book club series, digging into each chapter of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power by Jane McAlevey. And really exciting, another episode of our mini-series done in collaboration with Opening Space for the Radical Imagination, after the revolution that episode is going to be featuring sean from the seriously wrong podcast which is a hilarious podcast and folks definitely should check it out if you haven't listened to it already talking about 
malls after the revolution. On this episode, we talk with Marina Citrin and Vanessa Zettler about their experiences participating in Occupy Wall Street, which was part of a global movement of the squares, highly organized around principles of horizontalism, direct democracy, and mutual aid. Our guests speak to the experiences and mechanisms of organizing within Occupy Wall Street, and also the legacy and the lessons that we can take away from that moment in time. Their latest book is in many ways a continuation of the spirit of Occupy Wall Street called Pandemic Solidarity from Pluto Press. Listeners are highly encouraged to go get a copy of that book. It is full of essays chronicling the mutual aid projects all over the world right now during this time of crisis. And it really demonstrates fully the complexity of the human spirit that shows up in times of crisis in surprising ways. So I've been really enjoying it. Encourage you all to get a copy of it. And we hope you enjoy this episode of Labor Wave. We're experiencing another anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. It is now nine years ago that Occupy blasted off, and you both were participants in the movement in various ways. What I was hoping to do is kind of add to the historical memory of that moment in time, because I do believe that Occupy, for a lot of like newer folks to the movement, is not really discussed a lot, and maybe the history of it is just kind of forgotten or discussed in ways that are, quite frankly, not very helpful. So I'm hoping that we can kind of add to the memory, maybe correct some of the narrative and start with like you all talking about your experience with it. Like what was your background and involvement in Occupy and how did you come to like relate to the movement? And we could start with Vanessa, who's currently located in Brazil. I was a student at the new school in, at that time in 2011. I was 23 um, doing my undergrad and I heard about this call to Occupy Wall Street on September 17. And then I heard from a friend that some people were getting together in Tompkins Square Park every Saturday to start organizing for the day. And that was an open assembly I could join if I wanted. So I decided to go. So I went to this assembly in July and the first... Uh, assembly that I went to, I didn't really know anybody who was there, but I could participate in the assembly with the hand signals and everything. It was There was a structure for me to participate in the first assembly that I was in. So I started participating right away. I joined the arts and culture working group. And so I got involved since then until the day we went to Wall Street to Occupy on September 17. And we managed to to actually occupy, which was amazing because there was a lot of preparation for the day and there was some skepticism in my part. This wouldn't be possible. I was thinking maybe the police would just uh, get get rid of us, but uh, there was so much organization for the day and we managed to occupy Zuccotti Park and we stayed there for two months. And after that, that became a movement. That's so great to hear. Vanessa, I thought, this is Marina, and I thought that you had been a part of organizing before even Tompkins Square Park. I came into it and saw you there and just assumed you had been there. It's kind of nice to know the history, kind of the randomness that became this beautiful collective. I've been involved in different kind of direct action, more horizontal movements and studying and learning about movements for a while before Occupy. But the way I found out about Occupy Wall Street, actually, I was in California at the time for part of the summer, and I received an email from David Graeber. So we can conjure David Graeber here. Um, And he was there for the early days. And he sent me an email along with a handful of other people who'd been a part of the Direct Action Network in New York, back kind of organizing around right after Seattle, 1999, 2000, against World Bank, IMF, these different global financial institutions. Anyway, he sent this email saying, essentially, okay, let's get it together. There's this, you know, group of really young people who are, you know, look like us, basically, like they're speaking in assemblies and using consensus and it's horizontal and it's about direct action and we need to go and support them. And so I, you know, came back from California like a week later and went to Tompkins Square Park and also began kind of jumped right in. 
Yeah, I want to learn a little bit more about like that the working group models and some of those specifics of like who are the participants. But before doing that, I'm hoping to maybe get a little bit of like the kind of bigger backdrop on which Occupy emerged because it came after things like the Arab Spring and an uprising in Madison amongst labor unions and grassroots organizers. And so maybe you all can help paint the picture of this time uh, and why Occupy even emerged in the first place. I was following the uh, Indignados in Spain a lot and watching the videos of huge assemblies happening in the squares in, in Spain at that time. And I was very, very impressed. So when I heard about this call to Occupy, I connected to those things that I was seeing happening in Spain. And I was also getting learning about the Arab Spring that was happening at the time. So everything had this global sense uh, of energy that was happening. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also so often being in the U.S., we think Occupy, and in fact, news reporters, all kinds of people referred to how Occupy took off around the world as if we started Occupy, the Occupy movement. But yeah, it started from Tunisia to Egypt, and then all over different parts of Europe. It was in parts of Africa, parts of Latin America in different ways. So we kind of were actually latecomers to it. And then we also seemed to get a lot of attention at Zuccotti Park and what happened, you know, it became Liberty Plaza. But it was also in more than a thousand other towns and cities in the United States. It just took off everywhere. And maybe we'll talk about kind of why that would be, what kind of organizing that was that why that would take off in that way and how, I mean, I see it as consistent with, it's not a coincidence that David Graeber reached out to me as far as global justice movement and the way we'd been organizing and movements that came before, that this is part of a, an arc and a change of forms of organizing. I had the pleasure of recently revisiting a book that you co-authored, Marina, They Can't Represent Us. And some of the analysis that's provided in there is also how Occupy was responding to like the crisis of debtors, this kind of moment immediately after the housing bubble burst in the United States, and then other global like initiatives that were happening. So, so what do you think were the issues that people were really responding to, like got them in the streets in the first place? For me, it was, I mean, for sure, debt and all of these material conditions that were so much worse, the housing crisis. But really, I think like kind of at the heart of Occupy and in so many places was this idea that we'd been told our lives would be one thing and that certain things would be possible. And by people who said they represented us, um, you know, there's kind of in the U.S. it's an American dream, but in other parts of the world, it's, it's different. But it's the same thing that you have all of this possibility and all of these chances. And that was completely untrue. It was a lie and it was shattered. And that coming together, I think, was tremendous and around you know, happening similarly, kind of simultaneously around the world, you know, that kind of crisis, but with a whole generation of people like Vanessa, I think Vanessa's age, I'm older than you by a bunch, Vanessa, and like that sense of, wait a minute, our future, you said, you know, if we go to college and we do the right thing, we can get a good job. And people, you know, we're still living with their parents or living in debt. And it, you know, was the, you know, the emperor had no clothes on. People could see that we've been told this lie and then came together to organize around it. There is a material level that takes people to the street, but there is also this feeling. And I think that for me, I speak as a Brazilian uh, who was living in the States at the time. And I think that there is like a global feeling that existed at that time. And I think it relates to the global justice movement. So there is the sense of solidarity which I think then is one reason why Occupy Wall Street got so much attention from around the world because we are in the center of this financial system. So I think that it connects to people all over the world seeing that we were occupying that specific place. Yeah, and as you both have said, like it was global in perspective. And Marina, I kind of find it amusing the email you got said, these people look like us, so maybe we should participate. So I'm kind of curious, like, who were the participants of Occupy Wall Street? Like, who are these folks in the streets participating in encampments and, like, making demands for everything? They looked actually 
way more diverse than what we were doing in the global justice movement as a core. Honestly, I think when David was saying they look like us, it was meaning quite literally like he and I and a handful of people who happen to have been in New York or the global justice movement. So there's a similarity, I think, in the global justice movement and some of the people who were initially organizing around Occupy Wall Street. But just in kind of the core of each, um, Occupy Wall Street was way more diverse as far as age, class composition, and it depended city by city. So they looked like us. That was kind of true for a small group of us, literally. But I think it was actually more true with the sense they looked like us, meaning they are sitting in a circle like we used to. They are using hand signals like we used to. They are seeking consensus. They are you know, refusing to make demands that kind of sense of they look like us, I think was actually more, the forms of organization were so similar to the way that we'd been organizing. That is very interesting to hear because I didn't participate in the global justice movement. I think I was much younger at that time. But it's interesting to hear it was more diverse in Occupy. I remember Occupy being, especially in the beginning, mostly white and college-educated people who were uh, organizing. And... It continued to be like this, but a lot of more diverse uh, group of people came into the movement as we were in, in the occupation. And after the occupation finished, the movement continued to be very strong, doing a lot of street demonstrations and direct action. So uh, I saw that more diversity came into the movement. And for me, it was very important in the movement to to talk about that and to talk about uh, identity and privilege and to find ways to organize in a way that we don't uh, hear the same voices all the time, that we had strategies to push people up. And this is something that we were talking about during the movement and there was a lot of conflict that happened and a lot of conflict that we had to we had to discuss. And I think that there was a, a very politicizing process for everybody who participated in it in many ways. But I think especially, and specifically in the identity politics, I think for me was was a very intense uh, process of living in with our bodies really and learning how to how to change the, uh, the people who get heard the most. The process of Occupy seemed very, very important to the overall structure of like how people went about organizing. And Vanessa, I was interested by you saying earlier that you were part of an arts and culture working group. So can you talk a little bit more about like what did that working group do and like what was the working group model in general? So that we could start talking a little bit more about the mechanics of Occupy and how people organized. Yeah, definitely the, the process and the mechanics of the movement were very important part of it. People who have previous experience could do so much and people who didn't have previous political experience could learn so much. So as I said from the beginning, before the occupation even started, um, there was a general assembly organized in working groups. Uh, I joined the arts and culture working group, but there was already, if I remember well, the communication working group, the direct action working group, and kitchen working group. I'm not sure exactly now which ones were in the beginning, around six or seven, and that grew in to, I don't know, more than almost 200 working groups as it continued to evolve. And so there was this general assembly that got all the working groups together, but there was a level of autonomy between the working groups to do different actions. But to do it, we had to take to the assembly and go through a consensus process to decide what we would do together as a movement. In the arts and culture working group, for example, when, where, which the one that was, I was part of before the occupation, we were doing a lot of outreach and some direct action in Wall Street before we started the occupation to, to outreach about the action that then became a movement to occupy Wall Street. Um, we did, for example, a sleepover in Wall Street before the occupation even started. And we filmed it, and then this video went viral in Twitter to promote the occupation. The media working group, we were doing live stream and taking care of Twitter and taking care of the Facebook and getting videos and pictures and trying to organize all the amount of media people were creating and trying to 
put them all together to create videos and organize this. What Vanessa is describing is emblematic of kind of what Occupy and the move the similar movements around the world, the movements of the squares were about. That that form of organizing, which is each space is autonomous but coordinates together, and we create relationships, and it's about the relationships in a form of democracy that's more direct and participatory and self-activated, is what I think the heart of the movement without saying this is what the movement is and making a list, but the forms of organizing and the way we were relating was what we were, are, and the critique that we can't be represented, we're not going to make demands on institutions of power, that that form of politics, that form of organizing, that form of representation doesn't work, isn't representative, and maybe isn't even political, but we were manifesting the alternative and what we were doing, not just kind of coming together to say, this is what democracy should be. We were paying more attention to activating it through the different groups. Well, and what you just said too about refusing to make demands upon the institutions of like representative democracy, that's one of the things that like one of the legacies of Occupy that I think a lot of people do remember is they call it like a movement without demands. So what, what do you think about that? Is that genuinely accurate? about what was really happening? Or was there like a more of a specific political choice being made in refusing to like issue those types of demands? Well, I think in the beginning, the question um, from the Edbusters, which made the first call to Occupy Wall Street was, what is our one demand? And that was a question. And in the beginning of the occupation, this question still didn't have an answer as in if we were going to come up with one demand or not. There was not a consensus, uh, absolute consensus in the movement that we shouldn't have a demand, but that this idea that we don't need to have a one demand and that we are the demand, just the people organizing, uh, had much more power than lines of thought. So that became a major narrative of the movement, which I was pretty much aligned. And and for me, it, it made a lot of sense at the time. And it made a lot of sense in that global scenario where we had all those m- movement of the squares happening and where we were getting together to talk about our common problems and to imagine solutions. And political imagination for me is a very important key on that process where we are not getting here together to organize around one demand but we are getting here together to imagine possibilities and to create them and to leave them. So so for me, that made a lot of sense. And I think it made a lot of sense for me when I look and I see so many groups that came out of Occupy um, through this working, uh, working group systems uh, or caucuses and other groups that came out from Occupy and they had their one demands. And so they will get their material-specific political platforms and demands organized. And that all came out from this space that we created where people could get together and talk. Shorthand to say, you know, we don't have demands. You know, yes, everything Vanessa just said, we don't, there's not like the one demand and then institutions of power can meet this demand and fix things. And now we live in this new beautiful society. No. So in that sense, not a demand. We're not looking for a politician to change things or fix things. But that doesn't mean literally that there weren't groups who were working around eviction saying, don't evict you know, these homes in this neighborhood to whatever landlord, or we want to cancel student debt. We have millions of wants and desires, and some of them meant we had to engage with different institutions of power. But as a general political perspective and what we were doing, our gaze was at each other. That's that whole idea of being horizontal, is that we were creating relationships with one another, and that's where change comes from. You know, is it a good thing if a bank doesn't evict someone? Absolutely. It's a fantastic thing. Is it fantastic to get college, you know, debt canceled and personal debt and medical debt? Absolutely. But we are going to do that looking at one another. And the way people talk about Occupy Wall Street now, some people, is to be dismissive, I think. And we weren't serious because we didn't have a strategy. And that strategy was we weren't looking for institutions of power to solve things for us or to fix things, that we weren't strategic. And we were 
really strategic in changing relationships in what we wanted to do. So it depends on kind of where you're coming from and what your perspective is around change. And then also, and we should probably talk a lot more about this, the different groups that came out of Occupy Wall Street, what Vanessa was talking about with all the different working groups that were very specific, that kind of spun out and some of them became, you know, the one particularly around debt, but around housing when Occupy Sandy happened, you know, so many kernels of that were coming out of Occupy Wall Street. So it was the relationships and the forms that continued in ways that you could see if you're paying attention to the piece that's about relationships. If you're looking at what was the demand, what was the structure, you would say Occupy Wall Street died. But if you're looking at relationships and forms of organizing, then you would see it in Occupy Sandy and all of these other forms of organizing. And it's something that is pretty consistent around the world where there were similar kinds of movements. People said to the you know, movements in Spain that they were over. And what the people in Spain would say is, well, we might not be occupying the plaza, but the DNA of the movement continues. It's like those things that it's comprised of continue, those forms of relationships you see in all of these different movements. So kind of, did it succeed? Did it fail? What do we learn from it? Depends on how we're looking and where we're looking. And I think way too often, we progressive people, radical people, still get captured by a mainstream imagination, not the imagination Vanessa's talking about. And if we get stuck in their imagination, we're going to say it's a failure. But if we go into the eyes of what people in the movements were doing and we see what we were actually doing, we'll see that it was a different kind of success. There were failures in it, of course, but the success in how relationships change. And then if you look at so many groups and movements as they've continued to organize over the years, that DNA is in it. And that has to be rooted in Occupy Wall Street, which also has you know pieces that go into other movements before it, of course. I would say that for me, for example, I think that was so empowering in participating in that movement was the sense of possibility. And I carried the sense of possibility with me today, nine years later, I'm still... I'm not a believer because I've seen that happening. I've seen the power of people getting together and organizing. And that's what we were doing massively. And that sprout into other initiatives. And, and I know that we can do this thing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you all maybe to just keep expanding on this because I, I enjoy like the conversation around the legacy of Occupy. Like, How do you think Occupy still lives today? For you, things that you've seen in terms of politics that are being experimented with, what are the kind of legacies and where do you see it still happening? How Vanessa and I know each other is meeting through Occupy Wall Street. Why it was so immediately apparent that Vanessa and I should be, that it would make sense that Vanessa and I talk to you on this program, is that Vanessa and I just finished editing a book called Pandemic Solidarity. And it was with a group of mostly women, Colectiva Sembrar, the like seed planting collective in the feminine. What it is, is a book of stories from all over the world, stories like real stories, interviews with people from Brazil to Kurdish, Iraq to Rojava, Argentina, Southern Africa, South Korea, all over the world. Um, and people interviewed other people engaged in mutual aid right now in this time of COVID, in this pandemic. And the relationships of a lot of us to each other who became the contributors to the book has to do with those connections we made earlier in these more horizontal movements. And even who contributed to the book was a horizontal. You know, I talked to Vanessa, who then talked to Laís, right, who talked to Raquel. Like, it's this different people from around the world. They're in Portugal, right? So it's like all of these. And then Raquel connected us to Boaventura in Southern Africa. And these webs come through the movement. So things that aren't apparent, like social scientists or the, you know, traditional media, but all of those relationships are there. We very quickly came together, created this book that is filled with people talking about these experiences of mutual aid right now. Institutions of power are not meeting our needs. They're making it worse in most places around the world. And how are people doing it? In assemblies, even with masks or Zoom assemblies or whatever form of, you know, form we need to take to be safe. And helping one another, not asking, but doing it. And that self-organization is part of this longer story that goes to Occupy, that goes before Occupy with the Direct Action Network, that goes to the Zapatistas, 
but it's a different form of organizing. It's that horizontal gaze at each other. This is who's going to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, this network aspect is very important. Currently, I live in Sao Paulo, and at the time of Occupy, I connected to people who were doing Occupy in Sao Paulo that existed. And there were many Occupies around Brazil, for example, and I connected to these people. And nowadays, I have this connection with these people. In 2016, I was here. There was this coup happening uh, where President Dilma was impeached. And with these people I met during this time in 2011, um, we were able to do public classes and some public events that we did during that time where that was very necessary to have a more critical conversation about what was going on in the politics here in Brazil, for example. I think that the learning process that we went through participating in this movement is very powerful. I would love to see that continue happening. Movements where people can engage in and, and, and become politicized and active and where we believe that everybody can do that. Whoever wants to do it. Back more with Marina Citrin and Vanessa Zettler after this musical break. We're again thanking In The Red Records for allowing us to use music from their artists. And we're playing this song from the band Ty Vec off of their 2016 album Origin of What? called Real Estate and Finance, an appropriate title considering the backdrop of Occupy Wall Street happened in the wake of the 2008 to 2009 housing crisis. I really like the articulation of like the DNA of Occupy Lives On, because just for you all to know, I, I do consider myself uh, somebody that was radicalized by Occupy Wall Street. I was like kind of becoming political in this moment in time, but dealing with like a crushing depression, all these different material circumstances that kept me alienated and isolated. Occupy happened, happened too fast because I couldn't like feel like I could really grab onto it quickly enough. And ever since then, like I've just learned about it communicated with people that participated in it and all of that informs my politics today. But at the same time, it is interesting to think about Occupy's presence, not just Occupy, but this kind of horizontalism, these principles of process are as important as the outcomes and where that legacy is in this moment in time, particularly in the United States. Because right now the left has largely kind of shifted its focus to, again, an electoral strategy. Well, like an electoral strategy manifested boosting Bernie Sanders. Organizations like the DSA are growing. And those proponents, definitely the ones that are very vocal and lead those networks, are very dismissive of Occupy, like in the ways that you were talking about before, that it was leaderless, structureless, had no demands. I've even heard not very generous takes on it where it described Occupy as not even politics. It's not mass politics, therefore it's not even politics. How do you feel like Occupy's presence 
still exist in, say, the United States today. And what do you think the memory of Occupy is for many like movement participants in this moment in time? I want to link onto something you said. I mean, there's the bigger questions of all the, all the questions you just raised. But this idea that we weren't political, I kind of like that. Well, I like it in that it's a demonstration of, of a different way of doing politics. What is politics? So right now in the United States, we are stuck. We have to hold our noses, vote. It's so awful. I even have a sign outside my house. I've never engaged in politics like this, right? That it actually can mean something to, to have a president's name in front of my, I mean, it's just kind of, anyway, but that isn't really politics. That's like, get this thing over with so we can continue to organize the ways in which we've been organizing to create a new society. And that you see with these mutual aid networks, with a lot of different groups, with the Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, the ways in which a lot of people have been organizing in different towns and cities and villages all over. That kind of organizing, that is something new and different. And if electoral politics is politics, then yeah, what we're doing maybe isn't politics. <laughs> that lawn sign I have outside is politics and what we did in Occupy Wall Street maybe shouldn't be referred to as politics. And I'm saying this to be flip, but I'm also not. So a lot of work I did in Argentina and I lived and spent time you know, in Argentina after 2001 and the economic collapse. And people in those you know, massive horizontal assemblies would say they were not political. And I would look at them dumbfounded, right? Like, what do you mean you're not political? Like there's you know, hundreds of thousands of you in these horizontal assemblies throughout the country. How is this not political? People taking over workplaces, we're not political. And what people would say when I would ask, well, what do you mean? They would say, well, we're not like them. We're not political like that. And they were referring to you know, what Murray Bookchin called statecraft, taking over institutions of power at a high level as this strategy for change. If that's politics, then we're not that. So in some ways, for people to say we weren't political and Occupy, I'm good with that. As long as the forms of organization continue in this horizontal way. That's interesting. I, I go in the other direction because for me, Occupy has made me feel like everything is political. And of course, I think that's what Marina is talking about. But I would, I would go like to reclaim the, the idea that everything is political. Our relationships are political. The way we organize ourselves is political. And then that was one, that was the politics we were doing. So I will reclaim, I will reclaim that, <laughs> that word. You know, the question also is motivated by reflecting on this argument that the writer and activist Chris Dixon makes about historical forgetting. And I can't recall exactly where he put this, but he mentioned at some point in his writing that there's this kind of saying that movements are forgotten in five-year cycles. So what I'm wondering is like, what do you all think are the pathways towards recovering the memory of Occupy and like bringing it back into the fold in these conversations? that are swimming around me where people are characterizing Occupy as this like blip in time that was just a complete failure. Like how do we recover the memories of the reality of the moment? That's huge. I think we need to, that's a really great question. And I think we need to talk more about the history of the different movements and how important they were. I know, for example, in Occupy, we didn't talk very much about the Direct Action Network. I know Chris Dixon from the Direct Action Network. So it's not a coincidence that these relationships exist. So talking about them as important. Um, I think we so desperately want to say that whatever we're doing is brand new, that we then don't reference all of our different kind of movement predecessors. So we have to then work against the forgetting, if we're going to use the way Chris talks about this, you know, to work against that, because it is there, the ways in which we organized, whether they were good or bad, they're there. They're, they're huge lessons to learn from so many movements that aren't so good, including in Occupy. How did we adjudicate conflict? How did we deal with tensions? Um, something that comes up again and again and again in movements. And we actually took more steps in Occupy than in the movements before that. But if we talk about this more, I think that would help us move forward that much more. We used, for example, the Direct Action Network and orientation that we had borrowed from ACT UP which then got transmitted into Occupy without anyone knowing very much about ACT UP. I think making our own kind of historical timeline would probably be really useful. I definitely agree, Marina. To look back in the trace and all the, all the movements that came before 
each other and nothing that was created out of nowhere. And there was nothing just spontaneous that just a group of people decided to do one thing the next day that was done. No, there was a history uh, that came before and we have to talk about that. So for both of you all, in terms of like how Occupy helped inform your current practice, what were the like practical changes that you believe could have been made to have, you know, maybe sustained this moment in time longer? I know Occupy was physically crushed in like one sweeping movement of police repression, but trying to take the self-criticism in an honest way, where do you believe are appropriate places to leverage self-critique of Occupy Wall Street? There are a lot of places. One, I think in New York City, we held on to the massive General Assembly as the body for too long. I don't think we needed to get rid of the General Assembly. And we were moving to a spokes council model. There's so many reasons for it. You know, being in that moment, that General Assembly was where hundreds and sometimes thousands of us could be heard and see one another. So it wouldn't make sense to get rid of it completely. But we held on to it as the only place. And so in Spain, for example, they had this, couldn't even imagine, it was like a 24-hour consensus, full consensus assembly where they decided in Sol to go back to the neighborhoods where people had come from, where they were living, and to organize there. And that might have been a strategy that would have worked. You know, New York City, it's tricky, but it might have worked better in some other towns. It makes sense what Marina is saying. Um, I think that if we think we are the 99%, and who is the 99%? The 99% is a lot of people. And it's a lot of different groups of people. And... For a movement of the 99% to continue, we have to respect these differences and understand that each kind of category inside this 99%, the many categories that, the many layers that go on over the other, but they have different needs and different see how they want to organize themselves. And we were literally evicted in a coordinated effort by the federal government across the entire United States. And that's not to say there weren't problems in Occupy and there weren't different ways that it was getting weaker, but maybe that's where another critique is, is anticipating the fist of the state more so that when we're organizing, we have many more contingencies and that if we're evicted, what do things look like? Where else are we organized? If this assembly is disrupted, where do we reconvene? And in Brazil and in the United States, depending what happens in this election, but even with the outcome of the election, it's just, it's authoritarianism in different ways. I mean, one is a lot worse what we're facing here as a prospect and the other is, you know, kind of the awful non-representation that is what they call democracy here. But we need to anticipate better repression so that we have more flexibility in our organizing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's like, kind of something that I say in my labor organizing is like, stop underestimating the boss. And I kind of think like the same goes for the state. The state is the big boss. We continually underestimate the forces of repression that are available to them. I want to end this and leave this. uh, So one of the things about Occupy for me is just it was so inspirational and imaginative. And there was a lot of hope in the movement. And I definitely think right now, maybe this is kind of a cliche thing to say, but Finding hope in this moment in time is really difficult. So what I wanted to do is ask you both, like, where are you currently finding hope and inspiration for your imaginations in, in the political organizing that you're doing or seeing? I think Marina said we recently collaborated in a, in a project in a book called Pandemic Solidarity, where we gathered stories of people and collectives organizing, doing mutual aid and self-organizing during this time of pandemic, saving people's lives and in many ways, psychically and physically. I looked for these collectives here in Sao Paulo, where I live, and they are super inspirational because there are so many and it was very difficult to cut out collectives and interviews that I wanted to make to fit in a book because there are many, there are many, and they are super inspiring. And people are organizing, self-organizing in the peripheries, in indigenous land, in in various forms and places. 
And I see that this is not, I mean, this is nothing new, but I don't see it getting weaker. I don't see it getting weaker. I see it getting stronger. In the past 10 years, I've been seeing more and more organizing actually happening in my city, for example. So that's definitely inspiring. For me too. I'm going to be working on the book and the connecting with people who are organizing or organizing. I think this moment is magnified I don't know how many fold because we're all in our homes or in our teeny little units and all of what was so inspiring and beautiful with Occupy and the similar movements was our coming together and talking to one another and the hope and the inspiration comes from that connection with one another we are collectively the ones that are going to make change not individually and so when you're home looking at your screen that's really hard and there, there is a way to do that. Um, even if it feels really difficult now, finding ways to meet with, even if it's a handful of people who you used to organize with and reminisce about organizing or connecting with whatever mutual aid network there might be near you and they're all over. And there might be ways that you can do that safely if you, whoever it is listening to this, can't physically go and pick up groceries or move them or help, you know, in that direct way. There are other ways to help, but in those horizontal networks. And that will give you more inspiration. And talking to one another, telling our own stories. The media all over is dominated, not by us. They're not our stories. So we have to tell our stories. And that is inspiring. This conversation now leaves me more inspired than where I was an hour ago because of what we're talking about. And I think it's hard, but we need to make ourselves do that more with one another as tragic as it is to lose David Graeber, and it is. The night that we found out, some of us had a Zoom, and it was, a tr it was sharing pain and grief, and it felt more connected and inspired by the end, because there were so many of us who'd known each other over the years who hadn't seen each other maybe in more than a decade or however long, and we were there together connecting. So find a way to connect with people in movement, if you can't get directly into movement and stop doom scrolling. <laughs> I know that sounds really, it's, but there's so much terrible media out there and we're in a scary moment. And it's kind of like people who like to watch horror movies or something like you get sucked into the more dramatic, the more terrible. And it's not to say, don't be informed, be informed, then stop. And if you're going to be on the screen, connect with people organizing in a similar way or in ways that you want to learn how to organize. I think that's a really great place to end our conversation. I want to thank you both for sharing these stories with me. I'm also leaving more inspired, trying to bring back the ethics of Occupy into the organizing that I'm doing. And I really appreciate you both taking the time to continue help motivating me. 